discovered the next Beyonce and I had to let him go and you know this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It was tough. I raised a small friends and family round. It's really important that you understand how that investment process works. The company I run today is called Music X-Ray, and it was actually founded just over 10 years ago. We spent about two and a half, almost three years in development before we launched. And then when we launched in 2000, in early 2009, we realized fairly quickly that we had the wrong product. It just wasn't catching on the way that we thought it should. So we had to go back to the drawing board again and then relaunched in January of 2010. So we've been online now for just over seven years. What Music X-Ray does, it's kind of a two-sided market. On one side, you have aspiring musicians, bands, and songwriters from all over the English-speaking world, some, some of the Spanish-speaking world. And we provide access, guaranteed access, to all of the industry decision-makers Music supervisors, kind of the people who put music into advertising, television, and movies. The A&R directors at record labels who decide which bands get signed or which songs get licensed for major acts to perform. Back before we existed and back especially before the internet existed, it was really hard to get your music to the ears of professionals who could do something about it or help you in your career. If you didn't live in one of the music capitals like London, New York, Nashville, or LA, you really needed to know someone there who had a personal network within the music industry. So it was as much about skill and talent for the musicians as it was about who you know. Right. What's the website? In the, in the simplest way, how would like someone use it today? Yeah, it's uh, the, the website is musicxray.com. No hyphen, just musicxray.com. The way musicians would use it is they open a free account on our site, they upload their music. A number of things happen just upon uploading the music, including it gets pre-matched to industry professionals who are looking for music that sounds like, like yours if you were the artist. We show you in our database how many fans we have that are into the type of music that you're performing, and uh, then we offer you the opportunity to contact those professionals or rather send a song to those professionals, and if they like it, they open a dialogue with you. You acquire fans through the platform. And the dialogue that professional opens with you can result in a deal, your song being licensed or your band being signed, uh, any, any number of things. You're making it onto a tour, getting some studio work, things like that. But our real product, you know, even though that's a service that we provide to musicians, bands, songwriters, performers, our real product is on the other side of that equation, which is to the music industry. We've developed what is hands down the most effective filter so that the industry professionals are hearing mostly good music, music that's targeted to what they are looking for. 
and a lot of it is really good. We see hundreds of deals every month being agreed between industry professionals and musicians. And as long as we can be an indispensable tool to the industry, then that's really our mission. So if I'm like a DJ on the side for fun where I'm making my own music and I'm, say, uploading to SoundCloud and I've got a good amount of followers... How could I use y'all? I mean, would I send your my music to y'all as well? I'm just trying to think as a listener. If I'm listening, like, yeah. how much it would cost? Yeah, as a as a listener, we really the only service we have is for you to sign up as a fan. Mm-hmm. And when you sign up as a fan on Music X-ray, that's that's free. You give us some information about what your music tastes are. And one of the first things that happens when a musician uploads their music and they want to send it to some of the industry. We run it through this process called Diagnostics first, and Diagnostics costs the musician $10. But the song then gets sent to five industry professionals who work in that song's genre. They're anonymous at this stage. And to about 20 fans who we target because they are into the type of music that you have. So right there, we give you some quick fan feedback on your music. And if you're signed up as a fan and you get an alert that there's a song in the system that matches your taste profile, then you log in, you listen to the song. You get paid 10 cents just for logging in and listening to the song. You give the song a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If you give it a thumbs up, your email address is delivered to the artist, so maybe they can put you on their their mailing list uh, from which you can always unsubscribe or you know send you an alert if they're playing in your area. And if you don't like them, you give it a thumbs down, thumbs down you get 10 cents, and the next song in your queue comes up. So that's the fan experience for you. The industry professionals, those five anonymous industry professionals, are each listening to the song, and they each are giving the song a five-star rating on five separate criteria. So one to five stars on production, one to five on composition, arrangement, performance, and hit potential. We compile all of the data, the fan reaction data, the industry reaction data, and we show it to the artist. And we say, okay, this is just an initial dipping your toe into the into the waters here. But you can see how five professionals who work in your genre have reacted to this song. You see the average of their ratings. Now, if any of those five professionals who were anonymous happen to love your song so much and they have a, a use for it or they want to contact you, they, they certainly can. And some people have gotten deals at that stage alone. But the way that we work is so transparent that we take that data from the industry and the fan reaction and we use machine learning through Amazon to make a prediction. And we, we show the artist what's, or the musician what is called a selection prediction score. So it's um, zero to 99 percent. And whatever that number is, that is the percent likelihood that that song will be picked up for a deal of one kind or another if the artist submits it to at least 20 opportunities. So uh, we really we really try to show the artist a, a realistic gauge of what their chances are and show them how competitive professional music market is. And uh, they'll either get deals or come back when they have something that's a little more in line with what the industry is looking for. Can you give us examples of maybe what type of artists have gotten success from using your platform? Uh, yeah, you know, we see them occasionally. We get a major label signing. Universal Republic signed a band through us not too long ago. I'm trying to remember what they are called. I might have to look that up and, and, and come back to it. But we see, you know, as I say hundreds of deals a month. Most of the deals are sync license deals where the song is going into a movie, an ad, being played on sports commercials or even in sports arenas during professional games. 
the musicians are compensated, usually the compensation runs from $500 to $5,000 for those types of deals for the musicians. What we haven't done on Music X-Ray, despite the amount of time that we've been around, is we haven't discovered the next Beyonce or the next Taylor Swift or, or something like that. What we have done a lot of is placing songs that have been written by other people with artists like that. There was a Miranda Lambert album that came out uh, just a few, two or three months ago that had a couple songs on it that had been found by the uh, producer through Music X-Ray. And there's a, if you go to musicxray.com down at the bottom of the page, or even actually on the front page, you'll see some success stories and you can click into another page where it's just lists, just a really, really long list of, of success stories that have occurred through the site recently. What's your role today at the company? And could you tell us a little bit about the size and or revenue so we get an idea of your company? Yeah, revenue is about $2 million. So it's small. But all of our revenue comes from right now, the, the, the money that is paid to us by uh, musicians, songwriters and, and bands that are seeking access to the industry. Now, the way our system works is if a song begins to get a little bit of traction within the industry, our system, I'll just give you an example. Our system knows how many professionals there are at any one time out there looking for love ballads. And let's say the musician submits their, their love ballad to two of those professionals. And both of the professionals pass because it's just not the right fit for whatever their project is. But they give the song a really high rating. We can identify which other industry professionals are looking for love ballads and not just which ones are looking for love ballads. Professionals that are looking for love ballads that consistently have the same taste, give the same kinds of ratings to similar songs as the professionals that you targeted as the musician. So our system will then send that song automatically to the other industry professionals that we think are likely to want to hear it. So our deal with the musicians now, so this is the submission revenue money that I told you about that's about $2 million. But we're building up another line of revenue in the company now, which is our deal with the musician in our terms of service is if your song is picked up by a professional and a deal ensues because you submitted your song directly to that professional, that deal is, is entirely yours. You do your business between the industry professional and yourself, and that's the deal. But if your song is discovered by another industry professional through the magic of our software doing this kind of a relational thing I mentioned, then we would be entitled to up to 20% of the revenue that that deal produces. And in the uh, longer term from here on out, the bulk of our business is expected to be owning a large portfolio of revenue generating deals where we own a piece of each. How about the size? I know you gave us a 2 million revenue. How many people work there? When we were building everything out and building up customer service and we're doing everything manually, at one time, we were 23 people, I think. Mm. And that's the largest we've ever been. We automated so many things over the years that we're down to a team of about seven, mm -hmm. seven, eight. Yeah, we're a small company. How about backtracking a little bit? You said it started about a little over 10 years ago. I mean, how did you end up getting into starting the company? Oh, I started my career in the traditional music business, but had always been into computers without... I think I took some computer science courses in high school and could program a little bit in basic and something else, but always kept up with advances in computers. And in the music industry, they're not so much anymore, but it was a very technophobic industry. It was hard to find people in the industry who really were 
seeing the digital wave coming and all the possibilities that that would bring with it. And I left the traditional side of the business in 2000, just in time for the dot-com implosion. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't quite happened yet. And a lot of my friends were moving over into the digital music business. And I thought that that was where the future was going to go. So I took a job as the marketing director of a digital music company in Europe. And when the dot-com occurred shortly after that, the company closed down and I was left without a job. And I kind of had the choice of going back to the traditional music business or doing something new. And um, got in touch with a few companies around that were working on artificial intelligence and music and found a company just outside of Barcelona that had a project internally where they had developed music analysis software that could hear and understand what a song sounds like in a way a computer can. This was back in 2000, 2001, so it's vastly improved these days. But back then, it was pretty advanced for them. And they didn't know what to do with this. So we started trying to figure out how the software could maybe be used in, in music recommendation. And at that time, the only music recommendation that existed was on Amazon.com. And the way they did the recommendation was simply those who bought this album also bought this other album. So maybe you want that too. And uh, we felt like we could do that much better by figuring out the sound of the music, the actual song itself, and recommend other music to a user based on what they like or what they've purchased in the past. So we started going around selling this idea to music retailers at the time, like Tower Records, Sam Goody, Best Buy used to be, you know, have a big music section. And they all loved what we were doing. And the way that service was going to work was at that time in the flagship stores, these retailers were rolling out these really advanced listening posts that would sit, maybe there's 20 of them in a store, and you could go to the shelf and pull a CD off. It would scan the barcode and the track listing would come up on a screen and you'd put the headphones on and you could listen to anything that was on that album. The software that we wanted to add to that would be that if you're listening to something that you like, or maybe you've List, you know, you're putting something in there that you already own, it would start recommending other things that were available in the store that you probably never heard of, but that we were really certain that you would like. And we were competing against another company in Silicon Valley at the time. They were called Savage Beast, and we were both going broke. I mean, we were running these. The product was great, but physical music retail was already in decline due to digital, especially piracy at that point, Napster and so forth. They were losing sales at the rate of 12% a year, and they weren't willing to make the investments in the, these listening posts outside of their flagship stores. They, there were plans at one point to roll them out across the country, but then the retailers began seeing that, okay, this, uh, you know, the gravy train might be ending here. So we couldn't sell this software to anyone, and neither could our competitors. So we had to go back to the drawing board, and our competitors went back to the drawing board and changed their name to Pandora and became Pandora. And we went back to the drawing board and thought, there's only a little difference between recommending music to a person based on, on what they loved in the past. Why don't we tweak this and try to make the recommendation to a market based on what the market has shown to like in the past? Or in other words, predicting hit songs and selling this service to the music labels so that they could spend less on projects that, you know, they put a bunch of money behind them and then they would fail. Um, you know, the batting average in, in the music industry was especially low at that time. And uh, we could improve their batting average, and that would enable them to spend, you know, save money on projects that were destined to fail and spend that money on developing new artists that were more likely to succeed. And that's what we built. It was called Hit Song Science. And Music X-Ray is a continuation of that vision. 
how to find the right songs for the right commercial purposes within the industry. You know the feeling. You open your eyes and the light is painful. You're thirsty. And then you remember bottomless mimosas yesterday? Don't you wish there was a way to bypass that regretful feeling? There is now with B4, a lightly carbonated, non-caffeinated beverage you drink before the drinking starts. Filled with amino acids, electrolytes, and minerals to help you avoid mourning your morning, and packed with B vitamins to give you a natural boost. Celebrate tonight. Feel better tomorrow with B4. Drinkb4.com. Yeah, I know my uh, voice isn't as sexy as the other guy, but if you want to find out more about Drink B4, then check out episode 45 where I interview the co-founder. And I mean, the whole time were you in Barcelona before you did Music X-Ray, which you're in New York today? Yeah, I originally grew up in a small town out in the middle of Nebraska mm-hmm. and was lucky enough to get on an exchange program. My parents supported me and I went to a small village outside of Barcelona for my senior year of high school and came back to the U.S. to go to university. But then after that, I went back to Barcelona and that was my permanent residence up until 2008 when I moved back here to New York. So did you enjoy Barcelona? Oh, yeah. I mean, all told, uh, I spent 22 years of, of my life there. It's it, it's home to me. We, we kept our place there when we moved back. So we, we still go back and forth a lot. I mean, can you tell us how it was a little bit different there? I mean, did you understand Spanish and like business-wise? Because I had a lot of my guests haven't had that type of experience, especially for that long of a period. Yeah, I was so young when I went over there, and you know, I was seventeen, and I wasn't very worldly. So going there was just a huge intellectual and cultural awakening for me. I had maybe a couple years of high school Spanish when I went over there, and which is almost nothing. And so I, I really didn't know the language at all. I spent the first year having to learn that. And I was living in a town that was very Catalan. In the northeast of Spain, the region of which Barcelona is the capital, Catalan is actually the native language there. And it's as different from Spanish as Italian or French is or Portuguese. So the villagers, the people I've come to know now, and, you know, I've got a lot of friends in that village, you know, very patient with me and speak to me in Spanish, even though that wasn't their mother tongue. I was able to learn that language. But then when I decided to stay longer term, I learned Catalan as well. And business wise, I didn't have anything to compare it to because I hadn't done business anywhere else except there. So the adjustment for me was in 2008 when I moved back here. And then at that point, really understanding the difference between how business is done here versus there. Mm-hmm. What makes you excited in life? Huh, wow. Well, I love my work mm. and it's great to get up every day and be passionate about what you're doing. You have hard days and some days you just bury your head in your hands and are not enjoying it at all. But overall, it's 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 very fulfilling. And uh, I love spending time with my wife and traveling and she's a smart cookie. She works for Google and we love spending time and you know, it's just, you never run out of things to do in New York. Right. Well, and can you tell us, I guess, over the time, because once you moved back to New York, did you have any obstacles when you were building the company? I mean, it seemed like you had gone through some startups, so you've seen the ups and downs before, but how about a Music X-Ray? Oh, yeah. Well, Music X-Ray, after we developed Hit Song Science in my previous company, my partners wanted to go a, a different direction than, than I did. And so that ended up being a kind of a disharmonious split. 
and at that point founded Music X-Ray. And it was a great idea. And I had some reputation in the business and, and had done well at my previous company with that hit song science project. But for Music X-Ray, I didn't have any investors and it was tough. I raised a small friends and family round toward the beginning, but I think we had already gone my business partner here at Music X-Ray, and I had already gone something like 11 months without taking a salary before we raised a little bit of money and then pretty much used that to pay our developers. And the company was very, very close to, to shutting down. I had crazy experience looking back on it today. I had uh, contacted a small angel fund in Madrid and had met with the principal there a couple of times. He, he'd seemed interested, but he wasn't really committal. And I was in New York. I was on my way over to Barcelona thinking that when I got there, I was going to need to put my place up for sale there. And I bought the cheapest flight I could get to Barcelona, which happened to have a layover in Madrid. So I called the angel firm and I said, hey, I'm going to be in Madrid. Would you guys be up for a meeting? They said, sure. I said, well, I only got two hours. Would you guys mind coming out to the airport? <laughs> uh, which was an insane request. But they did. And they gave me uh, $50,000 on the spot and said, if you hit these metrics that you've just outlined for us over the next two to three months, we have more for you. And that saved the company. We were gone at that point. Right. So 11 months, no salary. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I don't know if you can remember the exact details that you were feeling, because maybe some of the people who are listening are starting their business and they're at that point where they only got a few more months of runway. What was your experience with that? It was sort of a double whammy for me because there were those first 11 months or so where we hadn't raised any money. And it was you know, basically three people working on the company, cobbling together things, trying to sell what we could and doing a little bit of consulting through the company with some of the music labels. But it was really chicken scratch. And that was tough. But we got through that. And then some time had gone by. I think we raised a little bit of money somewhere in between. But then in January of 2008, moved back to New York thinking, okay, I, I need to headquarter the company here in New York. We need to raise a serious round of capital. We've got more people on board, senior developers who you need to pay well. And I started just blowing through my savings. And it was especially hard because that shortly after that, you know, the recession hit and money just dried up and I was dwindling my savings and I was freaking out. My wife was freaking out. I would be so stressed out, it would stress her out. It was it was very trying on our on our relationship. We weren't married yet then. It was very trying on our relationship. And it was at the end of that where this incident at the Madrid airport happened. And by that time, I think I had gone another 11 months without a salary. And all I can say is economically, that was one of the most painful things I've had to go through. Nearly wiped me out. I mean, on the edge where there fights or... On the personal side, we don't hear a lot about that in entrepreneurship. And I know I, I might have been through that where you're so stressed out that, you know, you're causing your partner stress. I mean, were you not sleeping? Like, could you give more in detail? I wasn't sleeping. She would be at work. Every day she used to work. She, when we got back to New York, she went to work for NBC. She'd come back from work. I would have been in the apartment all day because we weren't renting an office. So I was working at home, which was kind of driving me stir crazy. It was my first year living in New York. And even though I'd visited here a lot and even done business here, I would stay several weeks at a time. It was you know, the first year was just hard for me to adjust living in, in New York, you know, for any number of reasons. Mm -hmm. 
So she'd come home from work, maybe after a stressful day, ask me how my day was, and I never had any good news. I'd be like, oh, this happened, and, and I talked to that investor. And he says he'll invest, but not until I do this spreadsheet with projections out for five years. And I have no idea what I'm just making this stuff up. And I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to have to sell the place in Barcelona. And she was, for a while, you know, always there and very comforting to me. But after not too long, she would be like, I'm stressed out at work. And then I come home and, and all this does is stress me out even more. I can't go on like this. You need to do something. And yeah, there were there were fights. It wasn't it wasn't pretty for a while. Yeah. And then imagine some of the listeners, if they've started their own company, usually they kind of start it from spare bedroom or something like that to try to save money. Can relate with the store craziness. I mean, how, how long did you work at home and when were you finally able to expand out and how did that have an effect on you? How long did I work at home? Let's see. Probably a year and three months. And then finally had went and got a shared, a shared office space, basically where we had our little cubicle section, but it wasn't, you know, we were on an open floor with other companies that had their own little cubicle section. That's done a lot here in New York for startup companies. And it, that had a great effect on me, even if it were just the, I think it was like a seven or eight block walk to where we rented, just getting out and walking to work in the morning and being able to wind down on the walk home in the evenings made a difference. But of course, being able to afford the office space, that was because we eventually did get some more investment and the business had started showing a lot more promise. When it lifted, it, it lifted. Yeah, because uh, I find a lot of entrepreneurs, they, you don't really think about that being an issue, right? When you're starting a company, I think you're just kind of excited to start the company. And then when you're not part of that office workforce, I think you start missing some things. And so, yeah, yeah, I think some people can relate. I, I know I can. So. And I, my, before I got into the music business, I, I had started a company that we had our own brand of wristwatches. And we didn't know what we were doing, and maybe more than we want to get into, but our wristwatches caught on as kind of a, a novelty or a fad item. And we took the company to profitability in five months, and I don't have an MBA. I, I didn't know that much about business. I was really winging it, which was very expensive, but fortunately that company was was raking it in almost from the beginning. And I just wasn't prepared for the long slog that came here at Music X-Ray when we started. Mm -hmm. And well, you're talking about you're finally able to move out. Did you make your hire right when you moved out? Tell us about your first hire and when you expanded. Well, let's see. Our first hire wasn't even local. So I, I was based in New York at this point. My business partner with whom I founded Music X-Ray lived in the Bay Area, San Francisco. And our first hire, our first real hire was our CTO, Jeff Durand, who is based in Boston and who I knew through working with him as a, as a consultant. And he's, he's still with us today, the CTO. And he's, he's amazing. So he was our first hire. And then I hired a couple of people here in New York, and, and that's what, well, both having the money to hire some people in New York and also, okay, now we need a place to work and to call our office, and that's, that's when we moved out. My first hire was a guy who I, who I really liked. He was my age, but had gone back to school to get his MBA at Georgetown. And I still felt at that point that there were some fundamental skills that I lacked as things might, one might learn at, at business school or have done through experience that I hadn't done. So I wanted to hire somebody who knew that stuff. And he turned out to be a great hire for those things. But when those needs had passed and we were on to the next stage of the business, what the company really needed at that point was business development, someone to handle customer service, someone to handle the management of the community of industry professionals. 
And so, yeah, I, I went, probably had three or four people early on that I had to end up letting go and then, and then rehiring as the, as the needs of the company changed. Right. Well, can you tell us about that process? I mean, is, is that the first time you had to fire somebody and tell us that was like, Oh, uh, cause you seem like a pretty calm guy. That's why I'm asking. It doesn't seem like this might be an easy thing for you. No, it, it never is. I had to fire someone a few months ago and it's just, it's the most unpleasant thing you have to do. But the, the first time I had to uh, really fire someone, it was, it was really hard. You know, he was essentially a friend in addition to working at the company. We would travel together on company business. We'd become close and he was really bought into the company and really loved what we were doing. And his role just wasn't needed anymore. We were having a hard time finding the right or creating the right work for him. And we realized that we were doing that and the company couldn't afford it. And I had to go to him and, and let him go. And I said, you know, this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I, you know, I, I guess I'd been fired before. I knew what it felt like to be on the receiving end of that. And it's, it's very, it's very difficult, but you have to do it. Right. Someone said to me, it's, or I think it's a line from Jerry Maguire. It's, it's called show business, not show friends. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, kind of closing out, do you have any parting wisdom for people who are listening, whether personally or business-wise, about being an entrepreneur and carrying on? Yeah. If, it, if it's the kind of company that you need outside investment to get off the ground, it's really important that you understand how that investment process works. You know, most likely you're going to get some money. That money isn't going to be enough to execute the full vision of your company. It's going to be enough to get you to some next milestones where they, you can go back to sometimes the same investors, sometimes new investors to get another round of capital. But the investment raising process is long and difficult, and you will waste a lot of time doing it if you don't start working on your next round almost as soon as you closing your current round, not spending the money. And one thing that I wish I had done much earlier in the process was have a good CFO, someone who could just make it their job to ensure that our capital was coming in. And obviously it's a, it's a team effort, but someone to lead it that had an already established reputation with investors and, and had contacts and would put his name on our project would have made it so much easier. So I would say always know where your next round of capital is coming from and keep cultivating the relationships that ultimately might lead to your exit. If you plan on selling to a larger company, know who those companies are, have relationships within them, make sure they know what you're doing and how your business is going well before you want to sell the company or before they would want to buy it. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, well, we appreciate you coming on, Mike, and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview or say hello, what's the best way for them to reach you? Probably email Mike at musicxray.com. My inbox tends to be a bit of a wasteland, but if I don't reply, usually my PA will. All right. Well, great. Well, like I said, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it, then go ahead and check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. We have all the podcasts actually categorized so you can find similar episodes if you like them. So thanks again and see you next time. Yeah.